You're a man that controls his own destiny. A man that is always in the pursuit of being better. You are in the right place. You are responsible. You are strong. You are a leader. You are a force for good. Gentlemen, you are the Alpha, and this is the Alpha Quorum. Hey there, gang. It's Derek. It's just me today. I know you're used to hearing the uh, all five of us on the quorum on uh, on the podcast, but we're adding a new show to the uh, Alpha Quorum catalog and it's interviews. And I know we've interviewed a couple of people in the past. We had Mike Olson on. We had Chad. We've had a lot of different people in and out, but we've never had another podcaster on the show before. And uh, this is Rainier Wild. You guys know him already from Lost Man Standing um, uh, podcast. How long have you been doing podcasts, Rainier? How long have you been doing it? Mm, I, I think we started actually in August, okay. so not that long. I, I'm on thirty now. Thirty episode thirty. Okay. Yeah, episode 30. I think that's about in where we're bag. at now. So by the time this interview, to by the time we post this, you'll be someplace in the, in the 30s. But Rainier uh, connected with some of us on uh, Instagram. He's got a great Instagram. Uh, what's your Instagram again? Evolving Wild. Is that what it is? Evolving underscore wild. Evolving, Evolving under- underscore wild. So we connected through Instagram. He's got a great Instagram account. I actually look forward to his stuff. Um, I get on Instagram a couple times a day and I look up you to see what you're posting. I look up my grandkids and I look up Tom Brady because everybody that listens to Alpha Quorum podcast knows I crush on Tom Brady however and whenever I can. So <laughs> we've got to. I feel in. I feel in rarefied company, no, man. That's right. awesome. It's you and my grandkids and Tom Brady. So, no, I look you up. <laughs> By the way, speaking of Tom Brady, did you watch any of the Super Bowl um, this weekend? Or No, I, I was on a plane coming in from North Carolina, you, and I, I missed everything. You don't seem like a football guy anyway. Are you a football guy? <laughs> you, I, I, you know, I, I, I play – that that is such a judgment on it your is. part. Got, it is. It's the nose ring, dude. It's like no one of us nose ring, you know, plays football. Well, I'm I'm six foot three and a quarter Shuffle. and two hundred and forty pounds, and I got to tell you, I was every high school coach's dream football player, except I was totally disinterested. Really? So you never played so, at all? Not you? Yeah. Not nothing. I played two years. I was backup C team center. Um, so that was third string backup, okay. uh, right. center. Yeah. I didn't know you were that tall, but again, we've only, you know, we've only, we've never met in person yet. So it's true. A, a real giant. So, so you don't watch foot uh, again. I don't want, I mean, no disrespect, whatever blows your skirt up. If it's not football, <laughs> it's not football. I'm, <laughs> Whatever kind of girly man I am. <laughs> those of you, you guys know, uh, Alpha Corm listeners know that Taco Mike's always calling it sports ball. He's completely clueless when it comes to anything that's not on a motorcycle. So that I'm a Patriots fan. I've been a Patriots fan for a very long time. And as happy as I am that they won the Super Bowl yesterday, that was a really hard game to watch yesterday. It was just so... Mm dull just i heard it was really low scoring three i mean it was like a soccer game so i mean it was wow. yeah but they won and they won the super bowl and 
Now I go every Monday after the Super Bowl. I kind of slide into a seven-month depression between football <laughs> seasons. And my wife is so happy right now. I looked at Mrs. Johnson tonight and I said, yeah, I don't have football for seven months. And I swear she smiled. She was so happy. So, And I don't feel like I watched yeah, that she... much, but apparently Mrs. Johnson begs to differ. So anyway, Rainier and I, we connected through Instagram and we st- we've been messaging back and forth since before Christmas we've been trying to do this. And this is actually... Mm-hmm. Those of you listening at home or at work or in your car, this is actually what the third time we've tried to do this. So the first time yeah. we did this, um, we had a great conversation. We talked for about an hour and a half and then the audio vaporized. It's gone. We don't know where it is. Just, Just in the ether. It's, it's out there. If anybody knows where that is. If you could send it to our Dropbox, that would be terrific because I tell you what, that was <laughs> it was good. That was man. one of the best podcasts oh, ever. No, it's all right. You're fine. We'll Can't, bleep you out. Ever. We'll okay. be. <laughs> it's all fine. Right. I don't even know if we're uh, an E rating on the podcast, but maybe we should be because I do know that some stuff has slipped out from time to time. But you, you know, it, the first time my wife ever listened to my podcast, she, uh, about like 20 minutes in, she kind of put down the earphones and she said, now, do you plan on talking like this for every podcast? Cause you know, there might be kids listening. I'm like, okay, the kids are not listening to this podcast. Here's, here's my, keep in mind right here. Just so you know, I work with the youth in my church that are 15, 16 and 17 years old and they are gotcha. listening. So if you are going to curse, just make it count. Okay. Just <laughs> okay. really, really consider is this, cause I, I won't bleep you. Well, we might bleep you, but if I, if it's going to, you know, I want it to make it count. Don't just throw it out there. So maximum impact. So, okay. But, duly what, noted. Duly you, noted. What is, what does Mrs. Wild think about um, your podcast? Is she a fan? Uh, I think my wife kind of tolerates it, but I wouldn't say she's a, like an avid listener. I think she's probably afraid of what I might say. What does Mrs. Wild think about the podcast? Yeah, Marie is a, um, so she is a marriage couples and family therapist uh, and was trained in that as well. And when she listens, she is always asking different questions than I am in her mind. So she does listen. Uh-huh. And she's always interested to see where I take the thing. And, and she's always interested in the guest. But I think she kind of judges me a little bit. You know, she's like, oh, you, you didn't take it as far as you could have. Right. It was like my questions are subpar. She's supervising. What may, why, why do you think you let off the gas? Because I, you probably know that you're doing it when you're doing it. So what makes you let off the gas? Is it, is it because of the format? You don't think that's the, the, the proper place to do this? Or are you just trying to keep things comfortable? Uh, it depends. Um, sometimes I do want to keep things comfortable. Sometimes I, I, I do want to tone it down. Cause honestly, I feel like the airwaves are full of belching gas. Um, just folks who are just saying everything that comes to the top of their mind in really intense ways. And I think what's most interesting about talking to men is this dance between the profane and the prophetic. Like if you just let men go for a while, if you just let them talk, ordinary guys say really amazing things. They don't have to have a degree. They don't have to be back bent over backwards. 
they will just say things that are really incredible and and are usually pretty irreverent too. So I, I like finding that sweet spot uh, in between the sacred and the sacrilegious. Yeah, I kind of like to leave all the cards face up on the table, but then keep your pants on, fellas. All right, let's, you know, <laughs> let's not give away yet. Not me. Now, I want men to feel greasy and slimy after they've done my <laughs> podcast. Like they, they just slimed themselves. <laughs> as soon as we're done here, we're going to have to take a shower because it's just been so filthy. So it's filthy. So let me, like ask, let me ask you this. Um, you've done 30 episodes. Um, do you have any episode that you're particularly proud of? Like, do you know the number? Is, is there one out there where you kind of feel like... Um, this is really where I found my voice. I know that if I go back and listen to the first five or six podcasts of Alpha Quorum, it's fingernails on a chalkboard. I, I honestly, I, I'd rather listen to anything than my own voice. But recently, I found that we're pretty. You know, I mean, for a bunch of guys with absolutely no training and pretty rudimentary equipment. I mean, our first like 10 episodes, I think we recorded with an iPhone. Um, but, mm. but the message is good. Is there, is there a particular episode you're proud of that you would want to point my audience towards that one? You know, this is actually one of the really early ones. And I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of it, uh, not because it was especially quality, not because the sound was really good. I'm thinking of it because it's a topic that when I, when men email me or direct message me, they always talk about this particular podcast. And I think it's really interesting. And it's, um, uh, oh, I think it was like the third or fourth one, um, back in August called Pain Versus Suffering. And I really laid out some of the groundworks uh, in my mind of what the difference is between those two things, that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And how we respond to pain, which is often to minimize and avoid, um, actually often leads to suffering. And so I talked about that, and then I talked about a new model for how to interact with pain. And for whatever reason, that just really touched a lot of men's lives. And I've always enjoyed that. I, I want something to be useful. You know, did you hear that one? I, I heard this one joke about a, a guy who, um, he was a parachuter, and he, he flew like 150 miles off course. He lands in a, a tree somewhere, and he's dangling in this forest, and a passerby comes along, and the passerby says, uh, hello up there. And the parachuter's like, hello, can you, can you help me? Wh where am I? And the guy says, you're in a tree. And, uh, the, <laughs> the guy up in the tree says, huh, you must, uh, you must be a minister. And he says, why is that? And he says, well, because what you said is equally true and equally useless. Uh, and, so, and so I've never wanted to be a minister. And I've never really wanted to be someone who I see as truthful but useless. So anyway, it's nice hearing that something is useful. So I would point men to that So podcast. do you know what number that is as far as pain versus suffering in the roster? Or should just, you don't know. And it's okay. If you don't know, you don't know. I can post it in the notes. So that's fine. I can tell you the exact date is August 5th. August 5th. How do you know that is, is something important about that day? Is that a, is that your birthday right here? You know, lunar calendar and just, you know, remembering, remembering the phases of the waxing. Moon. I see. <laughs> I see. Okay. That's fine. 
Well, no, and, and you know what? I, I will I will say one other thing. I love like this is a fun podcast. I enjoy like talking to guys across the airwaves. But there is something really fun about getting guys on my property, lighting them up with whiskey and cigars, and and talking. And so almost any of the podcasts that are at home are just so fun for me. So there was one uh, episode ten, the Menage a Trois episode with Drew and Nick. That was just so fun for me. Any of the ones with Ryan on there. Just a lot of fun because they're just with someone in the in the room, and that's really hilarious. As you know, you know. No, no, it's great. And when when guys can get together and they can be honest with themselves, and I don't want to say free from judgment because I'm not somebody that thinks that believes that judgment is a bad thing. I think judgment can be right. a very constructive thing if it's if it's from a if it's from a you know from a good place. If somebody's concerned mm. about you, then I think it's it can be constructive. If somebody's just trying yeah. to make themselves, then then it's toxic. So it really and and there's a fine line, but it's there. And so anyway, but yeah, when you get guys together and they're honest with each other, you're right that, that there's it, in all the vulgarity and the profanity on that, there really are some really solid nuggets of truth to take from that because we all. You know, we've all kind of walked our own road. We've all traveled our own path. And we've learned a lot of the same lessons. We've just learned them through different experiences. And pain is pain. We all experience pain. We've all had experiences in our life that suck. But when... Yeah, I I was actually thinking about uh, episode 24 that was uh, with my buddy Stu. And he's an educator. And... It was so cold. It was slightly rainy. I built a fire. We were sitting there. We were drinking these really amazing Manhattans that he, or oh, I think it was an old fashioned that he had made, smoking cigars, getting warm. Both have like these giant fur blankets on. And all of a sudden, he starts telling me as an educator about what's happening in relationship to educating um, kids. And he starts dropping these wisdom bombs on me, like out of the blue. It was so amazing. And I'll never forget one of the things he said. He said that, that uh, success is really dependent on a steady string of failures leading up to it. And today we do not teach kids how to fail. We try everything to avoid it, but what they need most is failure. And when he said that, I was like, oh my gosh, like nowhere else does this happen when in the middle of just drinking whiskey by a fire, do you hear that kind of stuff? So cool. No, not at all. Especially when, man, all of our failures are so public now, like everything's out there, you know, every stupid thing we've ever said, every stupid thing we've ever tweeted. I mean, I'm 44 years old, so I'm pretty like, as far as social media is concerned, you know, I was able to kind of come of age and, you know, I didn't join Facebook till I was 42 years old. But these kids, man, yeah. coming up, I mean, every dumb thing, they've like their failures, not only are they going to be public record, man, they're going to be out there forever. They're just going to have to, I don't, I, yeah. and so that's going to be a skill that the generation coming up is going to, we have to get them, number one, comfortable with the idea, the idea of failure, but also we have to, show them that failure is just another stepping stone on the way to success. And that's going to be tough because yeah. they're going to be reminded all the time. I mean, look at, um, you know, look at the situation with the comedian and the Oscars. You know, they ask him to, what's his name? The little black guy, the, the Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. Yeah, and he tweeted yeah. something 10 years ago 
and all of a sudden he has to give up this gig because I don't even know what he tweeted, but apparently it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, politically correct, and he loses that gig, and nobody's nobody's right. asking him, you know, well, what are your thoughts and beliefs now? Have you evolved? Have you changed? You know, they're all focusing on what happened ten years ago. We don't allow people anymore to fail and grow and and get better. It just and these kids coming up. So yeah, having that uh, truth bomb dropped on you. Yeah, you know, honestly, that that it's so true. Like, I feel like we used to have culturally this great awareness that actually one of the most important things on our resume was failure. And today, of course, we don't. Um, but if you look at the great heroes, or at least how they narrated their own stories, whether they were Greek heroes or, or you know, even Shakespeare's heroes. Part, the tragedy was sown in there, right? I mean, that's that's a hundred percent of how of how they developed those great skills that made them the men that they were. Right? Was failures? Yeah, it's not. It's it's certainly something that um, we could do a better job of leaning into it. You know, I, I've been divorced a couple of times, and and for a long time, I defined myself by those failures, and they were spectacular. And I beat myself, <laughs> and I beat myself up. Um, for for years because I had those two failed marriages and now I look at it and I honestly as hard as that is and the consequences from those failures are felt by me on a daily basis I wouldn't change it Mm -hmm. I wouldn't give it back I've got people in my life that I would never have in my life that care for me yeah and I've learned lessons and I've learned more about myself uh, than I, I could have without those failures so um, did it hurt? Yeah. Did it complicate things? Yeah. Would I change it? No. I, I, I wouldn't. I can, I can say that with 100% certainty because I've got a wife and a daughter now that I wouldn't have without it. And they're the greatest thing to ever happen to me. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I, That's I'm, awesome. It took me a long time, but I'm completely at peace with it. I'm fine with it. So let me ask you this, Rainier. You, 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 you you're kind of a big deal in your little corner, in your little corner. In a very small world. In your, in your, <laughs> your, but you've been working with men um, and, and, yeah. and men's issues professionally for your entire career, from what I understand. Is that correct? I'm sort of, yeah. I'm sort of curious. You and I have talked about this before, and I thought you had a really interesting story about how you arrived at this place. And, and I mean, for instance, I know that you were in uh, North Carolina, uh, mouth breathing another man's flatulence refer to <laughs> from our, from a previous podcast <laughs> when I appeared on your show. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you were brought out Good there memory. to, to, uh, to teach and, and train guys out in North Carolina, all the way from Europe and the Northwest across the country. So you've obviously developed a following. I'm kind of curious on what led you to this particular corner of the of of of, of, um, of your practice. Why was it men? What made you recognize the need there is out there for hmm. men that need help? Men need to have a place that lack of a better word, the salt on traditional masculine values and how you wanted to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Well, I think there's the, the, 
I think there's the theoretical or the ideological side of it. And then there's the really, really subjective and personal side of it. And ideologically, um, you know, I, I was brought up in a household. My father was a, a, a minister, a Christian minister and a televangelist. And, <laughs> and that's a whole nother story. But um, growing up in that environment, you know, I, I, in the early 90s, that was sort of the air that was being breathed in fundamentalist evangelical Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. That There was this loud kind of ringing of the alarm bell saying the masculine world is in crisis, men are in crisis, men need help. And so I remember being a young boy and then a young man, and I was very aware that men, one, the context I was in, men were leaving the church if they had ever been there, or they were sitting in the back pews, or they weren't involved unless they were being paid to be involved. And uh, I was just very, very aware of that. And um, then my friends and I went on to found an intentional community, which lasted through my 20s. And we had a very strong group of male friends who kind of helped steer that community during that time. And, and, and during roughly that decade of my 20s, I was super involved with these men um, in each other's lives. We, we worked together. We lived very near one another. Um, and I love that brotherhood. And then I became involved in psychotherapy, um, and went back to school was very interested in men's issues. Although interestingly enough, I specialized in chronically suicidal and self-harming, um, clients who had borderline personality disorder. And, and many of those were women. Um, and you know, that, that was a really interesting time. I had gone through my own divorce when that community experience mm-hmm. had had um, deteriorated. My my ex wife and I we divorced. I had two children from that that marriage, um, and suddenly was a single father trying to figure out what was up, trying to do uh, to learn. I was just coming out of a religious experience in a faith community, and I'll be honest, there weren't too many temptations I said no to <laughs> during that period of time. Like it was just I sowed my wild oats, you know. I I uh, tried a lot, and and a lot of it was beneficial, and some of it wasn't. And, um, and then I became a therapist and tried to get my act together. And I was working with these really large populations that had a lot of interesting issues going on. And I thought I was handling it really good. Mm-hmm. Like I would look at coworkers and colleagues who got out of the profession. Suddenly they were just, you know, it was like, oh, this is too much. They were always complaining. I was like, you loser, you know, like you can't handle this. And, but I think what was actually happening when I look back now is that I, I wasn't handling it. That it was actually sublimating. What did you say there? You cut out there for a second. Oh, it wasn't, I wasn't handling it. I wasn't actually, I was burying it. All this pressure, all these lives that were hanging in the balance as I went to work and, and really what I consider kind of to be an ineffective setup for many therapists, which I think it was for me as well. And I was, I was just stuffing all of this pressure, all this tension. And for me, that came out in a really familiar way. And a lot of guys experienced this, but I, I didn't really think of it as anything more than just being a boy. But I look back now, I go, oh, this is classic sex addiction. So I began to engage in impulsive and compulsive behavior. Um, you know, what a lot of guys deal with, like pornography and naughty texting and all these kind of things, you know, where I'm just, I'm trying to numb. I'm trying to sedate. I'm just trying to avoid what's happening. And all the while, I'm oblivious 
to the fact that this has anything to do with my waking life. And eventually that led me to have an affair, um, with a, a colleague and, uh, and, and I, I gotta be honest, uh, I still didn't really feel the full impact of that. And this was this um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was during your second marriage where the affair occurred. Yeah, you correct? know. So your first marriage that, ended, that, you had two kids from that. Now, how soon after yeah. your first marriage did you get married the second time? You know, um, I knew what I wanted. <laughs> and uh, when I met her, between when I met her and when we got married was just about eight months. Mm-hmm. And I think we had, I had just been divorced for a few months even before that. So it was within the span of a year. Okay. It was really wonderful. And we're still together. Um, and, I, and I think that's its own story. Sure. But, you know, one thing I really realize is that many of the issues that I was dealing with in the first marriage were left unresolved, right? Like I just moved on to the happy pill. Right. And the happy pill was a new wife who made me feel better and you know, I felt was a a step up and all these different things. And the truth is just all that shadow work, um, wasn't occurring. And so by the time it finally came around, you know, as you said, in my second marriage where I'm, I'm engaging in a lot of the same and even worse behaviors. Um, it's so interesting looking back on it because I still didn't quite get it. When I really got it was when the executive director of the organization I was a part of called me into his office and said that, um, that there had been complaints made about uh, toxic relationships in the workplace that I was, I was creating. This was uh, roughly within a year of having broken it off with the person I had been having that relationship with. But apparently, you know, you pee in a, a small pond and you start to poison the waters. And that's exactly what was happening. And, you know, I can honestly look back and say, it wasn't just that relationship. It was also the way I was moving in the world. I was engaging in these flirty relationships. I was radically open because I was dealing with this hidden, unconfronted shadow. And what I thought was just great sexual liberation on my part and me exploring what I needed to Turns out it was just me being an asshole. Sorry, <laughs> kids. Um, Isn't that funny how it works, though? It, Every time you're doing something you feel that's wrong, that you feel justified in doing it, yeah, you're just being a dick. I mean, that's just really what it comes down totally. to. You know, anytime you feel like you've got to justify, when that justif- when that word comes into your brain, you need to check yourself because yeah. you're right. You're you're being you're being a dick. And you're hurting people and I you're was. hurting people that matter the most yeah. to you, you know, because, yeah, because you're angry or whatever. Boy, that's it. And, and I, uh, I had to, you know, and I was, and I, I didn't quite get that I was hurting people in all honesty, but I remember, but I, I quickly woke up to that fact. Uh, and I remember driving home. Uh, from that meeting, ultimately, which I, I lost my job right. over, I was asked to leave. And and, um, and, and Rainier, I, you I went, need to yeah. make sure the, I mean, at this point in your career, you're a big deal, right? I mean, you're making a great living. You've got, I mean, at this practice that you're at, you are. Yeah. Yeah. I was a BFD man. Uh, right. <laughs> I had a, a kind of rather meteoric career rise and had already taken on a director position and really had a very specific niche uh, within that world and was one of a 
very small cadre of really highly trained people and therapists who had this kind of experience. And yeah, I mean, honestly, it was one of those things where you think you're untouchable and you've justified, or at least I justified my behaviors in such a way where I didn't just think I was untouchable. I thought I was unflappable. You know, I I didn't think there was anything wrong. And so I was so shocked that someone else could think that. But then I'm, I'm driving to my home and I know that I have this choice I can tell my wife this is all BS and, you know, this will blow over. These people are crazy. Um, or I can tell her the truth, you know, cause I, I had hidden that relationship that I had ended. You know, I had ended that relationship a significant amount of time earlier and now it was coming back to bite me in the ass. Had there been other and, relationships um, since that one or was that just, you know, there, there had been, uh, there had been flirtations and that's why I say like, I can look back and go, Oh, there was that one relationship, just a one-time deal. And you hear a lot of guys talk about that. Right. I, I rarely believe things are just a one-time deal. I usually believe there's a whole complex and web of how we're moving in the world. And there certainly was for me, mm-hmm. you know, it's like inappropriate conversations. I look back on lots of closed door kind of moments where it was, it was just me, you know, probably not being the most stellar of guys, not doing anything I would want my kids to do later on in life, you know? Um, so I had had this one full on blown out affair, but also just this general way of being. And, um, and so, you know, I I went home and, um, I told my wife, you know, we need to go to the beach. We need to go to the beach. We live about an hour and a half from the beach, the coast. And, she looked really confused, but she, you know, she's up for an adventure and we get about a half hour into the drive and I tell her what's happening. And she said, well, are the accusations true or did this really happen? And, and I had to take this deep breath and I said, yeah, I am. Um, I cheated on you. And it was like the air got sucked out of that car. I'm really grateful that she didn't like take the wheel and drive us over the bridge that we were crossing in that moment. <laughs> in retrospect, yeah, you, there are better times to tell like you your could spouse. Have that to a better place in the drive. But okay. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we spent, oh, we spent several days there at the beach, um, really just processing the hell out of that intense betrayal. And I'll never forget, you know, as we're walking on the beach the day after she looks at me and says, I think, I don't think we're dealing with an affair. I think we're dealing with an addiction. And that was one of many wake up calls for me, um, that it wasn't me being victimized. I wasn't being targeted. I wasn't being somehow maligned that the truth was that even if there was an injustice in the system that I perceived, even if that was true, the reality is I held deep responsibility over my character. And my character had become something that I did not like. I was like the character in someone else's bad novel. It was like I was like F. Scott Fitzgerald characters in The Great Gatsby. You know, that's how I was living. But the thing is, I had four kids by that point in time and was on my second marriage. I had no right being The Great Gatsby. Um, And so it was a huge, it was a huge wake up call. And eventually it led me to have to walk away from, from therapy. I I basically hung up, um, couple of licenses and, and really gratefully because what I eventually realized through doing a hell of a lot of recovery work, um, and a hell of a lot of processing with men was that that environment for me, as I had designed it, as I had participated in it, um, had really been a toxic one 
one that had been uh, taking me further and further away from who I truly was. And I wasn't moving my body. I wasn't really dealing with my shit. I was hiding behind the analysis of others. That's really interesting that you would say that. Why would, um, let me ask you this. Were you always drawn to that profession? I mean, do you feel like, did you have altruistic motives when you got into that profession? Or do you feel like you went that direction because you, you know, you, you had some narcissism or something inside of you that got off or you, you understand? I'm not, I'm not trying to analyze you because I'm not, again, I sell car insurance. All right. That's what I do. <laughs> My question is, was it, right. was it, were you always like that or were there, was there a moment where you started to kind of think, well, oh, I'm better than these guys. These guys are all foobar. Um. And I'm not, you understand what you understand? What my, I don't think I'm, totally. I don't think I'm articulating yeah. it very well because I didn't, no, I, I didn't expect to ask, ask this question, but since you put it out there, I'm going to ask it. I mean, did this happen on its own or were you, did you always kind of have this in you? Well, as far as like what drew me to, to being a psychotherapist, you know, I had a, a, I have a friend who is a Episcopal priest and he's Puerto Rican and we were walking one day and I was telling him about some accomplishment, some accomplishment in the world of therapy. And he looks at me and he says this really funny thing with his very strong Puerto Rican accent. He says, Oh, your daddy must be really proud. Um, your daddy must be really proud. And what I eventually realized within all of this is that I think a lot of it was my way of kind of an alternate rebellion to being a pastor. You know, my dad had been in a, a televangelist and a pastor, a minister. That was kind of the, the course that had been designed for me. And, and I think I had, as, as one would say, the gifts and the graces. And, um, and I think that this was a secular way of doing that. And, and living in a world as mommy's good little helper. And that's something I, I also eventually came to understand, that my role of being a therapist was actually playing out a very, very familiar pattern that had developed in childhood of being mommy's good little helper. And eventually, what I became as a therapist was the same role I had done in boyhood, which was counseling slightly borderline older women, a la my mother again. So <laughs> it was like going home for Christmas. Gotcha. Okay. So you, you, um, your career goes kablooey. Your marriage, I imagine is hanging by a thread at that point. I mean, was there the way that you tell the story, at least at this point, it sounds like, you know, a day later, wife says like, we've got an addiction and then you were able to work it through, you know, since then. But I, I have a hard time believing that there weren't some serious bumps in the road where your wife is thinking like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can put up with this nonsense anymore. Correct me if I'm wrong, but well, I mean, was it linear or were there ups and downs? Oh God, there were so many ups and downs in that process. Well, so again, I want to go back to that beach moment that I'm standing there in front of her. She says, this is an addiction and not an affair because what happened when she said that it was like, it was like the aha character indictment moment. I realized that this was not something I could fix overnight. Mm -hmm. And for me, there were really three things. There was this job, which as you said, I just 
it wasn't just a job. It was a career that I just blew up, Mm -hmm. just blew that up. Then there was this relationship thing. And this is now my second marriage, you know? And so I'm like, well, crap, I probably just lost that. And then there was a third thing. And this third thing was way more intangible, but honestly, it was so much more important than either of those two. And that was, there was my own soul, right? Who I had become in this process. Mm. And I felt like I was fighting all three battles. Sure. And really across that next year, I, you know, was still trying to walk out gracefully or salvage what I could of that career. And also working on my relationship with my spouse and also doing the deep work of confronting my shadow um, and dealing with my baggage in such a way where even if the first two didn't pan out that I could still live with myself. (laughs) And so, yeah, it was really hell. I mean, honestly, the thing was I wasn't working at all for about three and a half, four months. Um, And so it was my wife and me at home (laughs) together 24 seven for about three and a half, four months. We hardly left each other's sight. And so the entire range of emotions that one could experience together, we were experiencing, right? Like I had to sit with her grief and the betrayal and the fact that the man who she had married was not in fact the man who she knew. Right. And there was this there was this one moment where we had taken a walk and um, we walked back down into the neighborhood from the hill and it started to rain like that big fat chubby rain you know that can sometimes hit that's really cold and um and i start running back towards the house because i don't want to get wet and i feel her hand snake out and grab my shoulders and she jerks me back towards her and she says no you're not going anywhere i want you to feel this And, and I, I just, I, it was so powerful for me because what, what she knew and I didn't, I was learning is that I had lost contact with the real world. I had dived into fantasy and dived into escapism, but not reality. And so that, that journey for me was learning how to live with a very real and very painful set of realities that I was responsible for. Right. So yeah, it, it was hell. That's a tough part about, you know, when you, you're in a situation like that where you know it's all your fault. Like, you can't hang it on anybody yeah. else. And you, all these people that matter the most to you, you've hurt them. And you've hurt them badly. Right. And, you know, you, you would, you would want to feel their pain for them so that they wouldn't have to. And yet you're stuck right. waiting, you know, you, you just have to do whatever you can to help everybody heal, knowing that it's probably never going to be the same again. It'll be, and that's not to say it can't be better and that you can't move on it, but it's, it, it will never be the same again. Whatever was there before, you know, and we all have, you know, you don't have to cheat on your wife to have something like that happen. <laughs> I hope you, not. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all have situations like that. You know, I'd like to go back to, a time before I, you know, had didn't have a bad heart, you know, mm-hmm. I could be bl- right. blissfully ignorant of all the risks <laughs> that I'm taking, you know, without having to have that yeah. constantly in the back of my head. But again, that's not going to happen, not in this lifetime. So, well, and and, and to your point, 
you know, I, we um, we went to see a spiritual director and a, and a pastor friend who had been through a very similar experience during that time. I was pretty wary of the counseling world, to be honest. You know, I, I was very burnt out on well, it at that seen, point. I didn't necessarily want... You've seen the sausage yeah. get made. You know what's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> so many backroom stories exactly. there. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to, you know, rather than depend on the young God of counseling, I wanted to go to the old God of spiritual direction and see if there was some insight for us. So we, we submitted ourselves to this really beautiful process working with a spiritual director. And he gave this analogy to me, which really shook me. He said, he's like, Beauty and the Beast, that Disney movie. He said, the, the beast is transformed because of his own darkness. The darkness that was in his heart this prince's heart makes him a beast, but it doesn't just transform him. It transforms the whole castle. Everyone is trapped in the effects of his curse. And that's the same for you, that you haven't just affected your life. Your darkness has spread out and affected everyone around you. And that was, again, another really painful and powerful moment of awareness for me but pause the story there i listen to that story and number one i've never actually thought of beauty and the beast from that perspective but think about how empowering that must feel because if your darkness can have that sort of effect on yourself and your loved ones and your surroundings then there's no reason to believe why the opposite can't be true and that by yeah. you know, embracing your good qualities, being the man that you were meant to be, how that can't have the, you know, the opposite effect. And I imagine that's where the past pastor was taking you <laughs> with that allegory. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't leave me hopeless, yeah, thank I God. Just, uh, I, I always, yeah, and you know... I, I always get excited. That was a, that, I always get excited when I realize that it's all my fault because I think, oh man, if... If I'm capable yeah. of messing this up this badly, then I'm capable of, you know, making it great. You know, that, I mean, that's. That's a really beautiful thing. And I got to say, that was actually one of the, again, the gifts of that season. I, I was, I was in a lot of pain sure. because, you know, I was losing friends, losing colleagues, losing reputation, losing a lot of things. And I was, I was really quick to blame and it, it was easy to feel victimized. It was easy to feel like I, I was being persecuted, but I realized that was a dead end. That was a trap because the more I blamed others, the more I actually lost lost power because it's exactly like what you said. If I'm the one who is solely responsible for making this mess, then I'm actually the one who has the power to unmake it as best as possible too. And so that was a really important thing for me and really led me along with my wife and um, we we became the solid anchor in our, in our lives as we kind of dug out of that mess. Um, but it became that point for me where I realized I'm going to have to develop new actions in order to build new habits, in order to create a new character. So let me ask you this. And who, how, yeah. how long from that moment on the beach to that moment where the pastor is where you are able to see or stop blaming others, how long was that? How long a period of time was that? Well... 
I mean, I think probably cognitively it wasn't that long. I think at a heart space, it probably took, you know, I think we're talking six months probably into it before I really realized, like, I gotta, I gotta let this victim story. And to be honest, I had begun to assemble men in my tribe. You know, I, I dived deep into the, into an addiction recovery Mm -hmm. program because I realized there was something more going on for me. And then I also began to connect with other men who I deeply respected, men who were I was loyal to who were loyal to me and began to build my tribe. And it was around one of those nights at the, at a fire that one of the men actually expressed this perspective to me. And he called me on my bullshit again. And when he did, it was a very powerful wake up call. And I think that's when it sunk into my heart space. It was like, Oh, (laughs) I got to take back my, my ownership here. Right. Isn't that funny that, you know, you hear the same message over and over and over again. And it sounds like your wife was telling you, your therapist was telling you, your pastor was telling you. And then at some point you were ready to receive the message and you're drinking whiskey and smoking some cigars. (laughs) Yeah. And some half drunk guy says, hey, get your head out of your ass. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, my head's up my ass. You know, but it's funny. It, I mean, it happens all great. the time. It happens all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It is. And I mean, it, I actually think it's beautiful. I mean, I think if we listen to life, life will give us all the feedback we need. Right? Like, and, and that's what happened. Life was giving me feedback. It was like, hey, you can't live this way anymore. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember this one moment where I had a really bad toothache. And I was able to live with that toothache for like the better part of a year until I'm literally rocking on my couch, moaning with like a rag (laughs) clenched in my teeth. And I'm going, you know, like Chewbacca. And my wife finally said, you have to go to the dentist now. And I think it's so funny, like men, as men, we can ignore symptoms and pain even for a long time. And it's usually someone else saying, hey, I can't tolerate this Listen, <laughs> that, or, that wakes us up. Exactly. I think we're all, as a, as a man, it's really hard for us to feel vulnerable and powerless in the moment. And sometimes it takes somebody else to say, like, look, you need to get this checked out. You know, it wasn't, yep. I've told the story, I told the story in your podcast and I think I've told it on my podcast before. But it wasn't until somebody said, hey, Derek, you don't look good. You need to go to the doctor. But I actually left mm-hmm. work and went to the doctor. And that's when I found out, you know, all my health, health wow. issues. So, Yep. So Feedback, man. So tell me about your tribe up there in the Northwest. What are you guys up to right now? I mean, it sounds to me like you got a lot of yeah. great activities, a lot of great events going on up there. Well, I, I probably that's a good bridge to actually say, like, you know, climbing out of that pit tribe became really, really important to me. Um, because what I realized was the people who were in my life that remained were the people who I really needed to be loyal to and to pour into. And so I began to open up my property to various men to come and sit by the fire to, to kind of share their stuff just as I was sharing mine. And out of that came a really beautiful weekly gathering that was, was part physical, part um, ritualistic, part emotion-driven, vulnerable, and a hell of a lot of fun um, that just became my lifeline. And 
as we were having those, there were guys who couldn't necessarily come, who uh, wanted to know more. And so I, um, I started to blog about it, you know, and I've never been someone who's short for words, but honestly, for a several year process of time, I had stopped talking. I had stopped writing. I had stopped doing anything. And so I found that once again, I had this opportunity to write. And so I started to, I started to write on evolvingwild.live and began to write articles about what we were experiencing and some of the ideas and concepts behind it that were very specific to men and the men in my life. Right. And then out of that, you know, I was having these great conversations around the fire and sometimes across the miles with men. And I wanted, um, I wanted other men to kind of hear those because I just, I thought it was beautiful what was happening. So then I started to mic it <laughs> and record it, you know, like they knew I, they were being mic'd sure. <laughs> and recorded, but, but, uh, and that became last man standing. The idea was real conversations with real men. Um, and so we started to do that. And then the Instagram followed kind of rather quickly there. So much of this has been organic, organic growth. No, you can see that. You can see it in the Instagram. You know, some of the, some of these, you know, men's groups that are out there on Facebook and Instagram, um, feel a little bit contrived, like, you know, they're copying somebody else's. And, And I think that's terrific. And, and I, and I'm guilty of it myself. But when you see sure. that, when you see this come from an organic place, you know, that's the, the those are the fun ones to watch because at that point, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of going where, where the message takes you, you know, you sometimes not knowing where you're going to end up is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've got to be honest, I really haven't so much of this time. I mean, my goal has just been to do my dance, um, to live authentically and courageously. And, and, you know, one by one men have begun to, to reach out and to interact, you know, certainly, uh, you know, over a decade of, of years and experience in the psychological world and working as a, a professor and a spiritual director, all these different things have certainly influenced my ability to connect with men and, and I've, I've enjoyed that. It's been so good to directly mentor men again and, uh, and to interact with their lives. Oh, that's great. And, it, and like you said, it's, it's, it's empowering. You know, we find power in sharing those experiences with other, other men and being honest and telling the truth and, and keeping each other accountable. And I hate the term, you know, safe space because it's just, you know, <laughs> yep. but you know, you kind of want to have an unsafe, safe space, a place where you can be honest, but you know, where also, you know, that you're, they've got your back, you know, and that's right. And if you step out of line, they're going to correct you, but they know it's going to, you know, it's coming from a place of love and respect. So well, I love that unsafe space, an unsafe, safe space. So maybe that's what we'll call this episode of the podcast, unsafe, safe spaces. Well, how do we reach you on the uh, social media, on the inter, on the internets? Yeah, well, the primary way is to go to evolvingwild.live. And, you know, if you resonate with my story and you connect with, um, you know, the goals that we're talking about, then I, I, I um, provide resources there as well as work with men on one-on-one mentorship and, my whole goal is really just to help men discover their essential self and their sense of purpose and their mission on this planet. Um, just like the process for me. So, um, 
you can go to evolvingwild.live and do that. You can certainly go to Instagram, which we talked about earlier. Facebook, we're actually just launching a really cool Facebook group uh, on there. And you can get Lost Man Standing, the podcast, wherever there are podcasts being played. Well, I appreciate you having on the show today. This has been great. This is actually the, I, I honestly, I'm so excited to send this over to Brad so he can dice it and splice it or whatever the hell he does with all the techie stuff and post it <laughs> because I've been so excited to have this interview with you for, like I said, since before Christmas is when we tried to hook up. And finally, what is today? Sep- uh, September, February 4th, almost 5th. It's February 5th, Sunday. Yeah. We're finally talking. It's been a long time this coming. Is, you've got a great story. And, and so far, you know, a happy ending, you know, I mean, it sounds to me like, <laughs> Mrs. Wild is is uh, is on this journey with you, and and the kids are doing well. You've got four boys, right? Or is it three boys and one, and one right. daughter? And I do want to actually say something about Mrs. Wild. <laughs> you know, here's what's so cool: when men show up and do the work really do the work, not because they're losing their job, not because they're losing their family or their wife, but because they want it for themselves. Because they know that if there's one thing worth it to them by the time they get to the end of their life, that they will have gained their own soul in the process. Um, You can actually get to the good stuff again, right? So my wife and I, our relationship is better than it's ever been. I mean, like, it's crazy. I don't even believe it. But there's a lot of headwind there. We have done a hell of a lot of work to get there. But I just love that that's possible. You know, man, she's she's amazing. She's so sexy and cool. And dude, I I love being married. I love being monogamous. That's that's crazy. Who would have ever thought? Jeez, not me. (laughs) So no, that's true. They. um, I feel like I'm messing up what you just said because it was terrific. But we, I think we, we sell our wives short on what they'll put up with if they see us really going for it and going for it for the right reasons. Like, be honest, be authentic, be a, a, do the right things for the right reasons, and a good woman will follow you. She'll go with you. They always do. Yeah. I mean, she would not have she would not have taken the plunge and kept going with me if she had not seen that I was I was serious about confronting my shadow about discovering who I was and finding my purpose. Um, and she knew she could trust me because she saw how full bore I was going. So anyway, I just want to say that because I think that's important for men. One last question for you before I let you go. Now you're, you meet weekly with your tribe there. Um, and you're in Oregon, right? Eugene. Uh, I'm actually just north of Oregon in, uh, just north of Portland actually in the Washington area, but yeah, Portland. Um, is, do you have guys coming from all over the country to meet with you or is it mostly locals? You know, we, we um, particularly in the summer, we had an explosion of guys, some guys from all over the country coming in to participate in that. I actually shut down that really, really expansive section. And now I'm, I'm, I'm hunkering down to like my core tribe mm-hmm. and building my core tribe in solidarity for the winter. We'll open it back up again in the spring. And I think we're going to do some super cool events in multiple places in the nation that are going to be initiatory and expansive so i'm i'm super excited you're not going to be sticking a stick in somebody's wiener are you 
Dude, we're going to be splicing people open right and left. Yeah, right. Sign me up for that. <laughs> All right, buddy. Hey, it was great having you on the show. And uh, keep us posted on uh, on your activities so this spring and summer because uh, I think I might have to hop on a plane and be part of it. So thank you very much for being Dude. on the show. Very first interview. You've got to feel good. This would Woo. put it in the books. All right, man. Raise the roof. Thanks, buddy. All right. Talk to you later. Stay wild. Gentlemen, you are the alpha and this is the Alpha Quorum.